This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg and grab a stool. Come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Just to give you a heads up, coming up in second in the second hour of tonight's transmission, paranormal investigator Rosemary Ellen Guiley. She has a brand new book out, uh, and it's called Haunted Hills and Hollows, What's Lurking in Green County, Pennsylvania. That's coming up. Meanwhile... We are entering into an exciting period of time in the heavens because we have a blood moon coming this month and it's going to bring, it's going to be the longest lunar eclipse of the 21st century and Mars is going to appear unusually bright, brighter than normal as it passes its closest to Earth for 15 years. Now, meanwhile, there's a huge dust storm going on uh, in Mars. So uh, maybe it's time that we uh, we bring some clarity to the red planet. And I have just the guest to do that. John Brandenburg, PhD, is a plasma physicist. He did his graduate work in California at Lawrence Livermore National Lab in controlled plasmas for fusion power and has worked in defense, energy, and space research. Dr. Brandenburg was also part of the Clementine mission to the moon, which discovered water at the moon's pole. However, the focus of Brandenburg's scientific career has been to complete the great effort of Einstein to unify the two long-range forces of nature, gravity and electromagnetism. And he will also be one of the featured speakers at the Mutual UFO Network Symposium. That's MUFON 2018 Symposium. That's happening in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And uh, that's uh, going to take place from July 27th to the 29th. You can get more information at www.mufonsymposium.com. A great pleasure to welcome John Brandenburg, PhD, back to The Conspiracy Show. Hey, John, how are you? Oh, I'm great, and it's a great honor and pleasure to be on your show. 
Now, oh, we should mention, of course, the books, Life and Death on Mars, The New Mars Synthesis, Beyond Einstein's Unified Field, Gravity and Electromagnetism Redefined, and Death on Mars. Now, Mars, obviously, uh, front and center in the news these days, but also it'll be front and center at the MUFON Symposium. You're going to be talking about a report from Mars. And this is fascinating to me that this is something I wasn't aware that you've discovered that the the U.S. government expected to find intelligent artifacts on Mars yes. when it formed NASA way back in 1958. Tell me Mars, about that. Yep, the uh, the U.S. government was uh, great uh, followers of Percival Lowell, as it turns out. Um, you must realize that officials in the government have a different view of scientists than the public. Sci- uh, the public views scientists with a sense of awe. These are learned men sitting at universities <clears throat> um, uh, and who make sage comments. Uh, the government views them differently. To the government, the scientists are people who come to their offices and ask for money. <laughs> <laughs> and so they, they have a slightly jaded view of scientists. Um, it's not uncommon for scientists to be in their office one day um, saying that something is impossible, and uh, then the Russians do it the next day, and they are the same people are back in the same office asking for money to investigate the thing they claimed was impossible the other day. So the government officials were fairly persuaded that Percival Lowell, with his canals, I mean, this was 1960, uh, 1958, 1960, when they did this uh, Brookings Institute report, and uh, so they had not sent a probe to Mars yet to discover there weren't any canals. There turned out to be water channels, um, basically the same thing, but uh, there were no canals. Uh, however, because of the canal controversy, the U.S. government was persuaded that it was likely there was a dead civilization or at least a dying civilization on Mars. And they put that in the report that if they found artifacts of this civilization, uh, it being the Cold War, this was to be suppressed. It's right there in the document. You can see it on uh, Wikipedia. Mm. And so, in a sense, this was a cover-up whose game plan was laid out at the beginnings of uh, Mars exploration. There was going to be a Mars cover-up. And... um, because Mars was likely the home of a dead civilization or a, or a dying one. So uh, Werner von Braun himself said that uh, any um, uh, the first batch of astronauts to Mars should include, include archaeologists. He said that in the mid-60s. And so the stage was set for a collision between our desire to gain more knowledge about the red planet, which is the most Earth-like planet uh, that we can get to in the rest of the universe. And this policy clearly stated that any artifacts found on Mars were to be, uh, any knowledge of them was to be suppressed and kept from the public. Fascinating. And that really set the mood for uh, for, for NASA. Uh, yes. And, and so how much of this philosophy then uh, informed informed NASA, not only with, with regards to Mars, but with regards to, you know, 
occasionally we see video feeds turned off suddenly oh, yes. on the International Space Station and so forth? A, a certain amount of the UFO cover-up extends into the space program uh, because uh, if, if obviously if people, if, if extraterrestrials are visiting Earth, living ones in spaceships, then you're going to see them in space uh, as well as, uh, you know, flying over uh, our airspace. So um, that was uh, that was not directly addressed. It was basically a finding of artifacts on the surface of Mars or other planets or the moon. And uh, but the same the, the UFO cover up was in full operation at that point anyway. So um, it was kind of an unspoken uh, policy of the U.S. government to suppress any knowledge of uh, living extraterrestrials. And if they found evidence of dead extraterrestrials on Mars, um, this Brookings report uh, carried the policy that that was to be handled also in the same way as the UFO cover-up. Fascinating. So that brings us to 1976 and uh, the um, the launching, well, 75, I guess, for the launching of uh, Viking 1 and 2. Yes. Um, magnificent, magnificent project. Uh, they had already sent the Mariner 9 to Mars. Mariner 9 um, had taken high-resolution pictures from orbit, and they'd found uh, evidence of massive water channels uh, and lakes, a massive canyon on Mars, uh, exposing a lot of uh, sedimentary layers. Um, so then the Vikings followed up on this, and... Uh, basically, in one mission, uh, rewrote the entire Book of Mars. Right. You had you had one um, one sort of photographing the uh, the surface of Mars from orbit. One studying the planet from the surface. Yes, they had two uh, two nuclear powered landers, and this was to also to celebrate the Earth, um, United States bicentennial. So they just pulled out all stops on this mission and everything worked um technically just perfectly yeah and maybe too course, perfectly maybe too pictures perfectly of Sidonia Menza <laughs> that's right and found a face and a pyramid there so they basically discovered what they had uh been afraid they would discover right now so that was viking 1 uh that was circling yes. the planet that grabbed those photos where was Viking 2? Was it Viking anywhere was, in, in, near Sidonia? Uh, well, Viking 2 was supposed to land at Sidonia with its lander, but they, <laughs> after they took the picture of uh, the face in the pyramid at Sidonia Menza, uh, they decided not to land the lander there. They decided to change the, um, um, rather hastily, in fact, and in a manner which caused a deep annoyance with the scientific team. They suddenly decided to change the landing to a place called uh, Utopia. Um, and as it turns out, um, that was a far more dangerous place to land, uh, but they managed to pull it off. And so they got two landers on the surface. The Viking two tended to ride in a higher uh, orbiter, tended to ride in a higher orbit. So it didn't take as as uh, high resolution pictures as Viking One. So this is fascinating because I didn't I wasn't aware of this. So the decision to move the landing of Viking Two 
was based on the Viking One image of the Sidonia Mensa. Uh, apparently so, because the Viking Two lander landing site, the prime site, was Sidonia. And they wanted to land it there because it's kind of the Riviera of Mars. It's where a um, Mars winds just in the northern hemisphere blow in the same direction as they do on Earth. From the north, um, they come from the northwest. And uh, this carried moisture from the polar caps right into uh, the Sidonia area which looked like it was uh, part of a seacoast. So it would have been the best place to look for life. Lots of, wa uh, lots of water vapor. But they instead changed it to uh, Utopia. Uh, so it was uh, this, uh, we now know that this caused uh, uh, a great deal of... Um, uh, bad feelings between the scientific team and the NASA management team. And in fact, the people who decided, who made the last minute change at landing sites, uh, belonged to a committee that many of the scientists did not even know existed. They thought they were running the mission. Hmm. And as it turned out, they were not. So how did we get that image from 1976 of that face on Mars from Cydonia. How did how was that uh, oh, allowed to be released? <laughs> because the scientific team was extremely irritated, uh, they released the picture. <laughs> well, God bless them for that. <laughs> they, they said uh, the, the version I heard was that Hal Mazursky uh, because he was extremely angry that they changed the landing site to basically without notifying the scientific teams, um, they had this picture and they just released it without uh, consulting anybody. So <laughs> there was kind of a breakdown in management function. And for that reason, uh, this became uh, well known then that there was this uh, what looked like an archaeological uh, site at Sidonia Menza, they claimed that they took another picture an hour later and that uh, it showed no face. That, But as it turns out, that was, how, how, how can we put this delicately? The U.S. government uh, basically uh, was not telling the truth. Right, or as the old, the old... They took the, no picture an hour later because it would have been sunset. It would have been, it would have been dark. Ah, they they're saying the shadows were playing tricks on us. Yeah, they, they waited 30 days and then took a second picture. And it showed very clearly the face and then 20 kilometers away, a five-sided pyramid. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what that means. This was the frame uh, 70A13, which was discovered by DiPietro and Molinar. And it was in the NASA files. And uh, DiPietro and Molinar found it, enhanced it. They got the raw data tapes and enhanced it. It showed the pyramid and the uh, face very clearly. And uh, NASA denied that, that the picture existed for many years. 
unbelievable. Even though it's right in their files. <laughs> right, right. We even and, found it in scientific articles that they'd published as part of photo mosaics. So uh, it was not a good day for uh, NASA. And the, the reason, uh, apparently the reason it happened was um, they had uh, they had implemented this policy of avoiding anything that might be archaeological. This made the scientific uh, team very angry. And they basically did a little guerrilla science and released the picture of Cydonia Menza uh, without, uh, without informing the management team. All right. Listen, John, we're going to take a time out when we come back. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll revisit the, uh, the photographs uh, of the, uh, the face on Mars. And lo and behold, the photos in 1998 and in 2001 yes. look very, very different. We'll do that on the other side. John Brandenburg is with us. We're talking about Mars right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with John Brandenburg, Ph.D., and once again, uh, the author of Death on Mars, and he will be one of the feature speakers at the MUFON 2018 Symposium taking place in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. That's at the Crown Plaza, and uh, that's July 27th to the 29th. That's in the Philadelphia area, so if you get a chance, get on down there and uh, and check it out uh this there's a real some real heavyweights in in addition to john brandenburg uh will be speaking there and um again that website is um 2018 mufon uh sorry mufon mufonsymposium.com john brandenburg's speech will be about uh, well a report from mars does the path to the extraterrestrial disclosure lead through cydonia mensa and we've been talking about the famous uh viking one orbiter photograph of uh this face on mars before we talk about the images from 98 and 2001 what what similarities when you look at this image this face on mars what similarities do you see between it and let's say the sphinx oh uh, this it's following the same pattern of a large geometric object a pyramid or pyramids at uh, giza and then a human face um so it's capturing both the human uh admiration for its own image and also of the exacting uh, mathematical uh, objects it creates, which it also admires. Uh, there's a very similar process going on um, at the La Venta in Old Mexico, where the Olmecs carved colossal heads, and they also had a pyramid right next to it. And what would the um what type of rock would that be? What would the composites be in it, that that was carved from? Oh, uh, well, in the, uh, the case of Giza, I believe everything, the basic uh, materials were limestone. Yes, but, but, on, uh, but on Mars. The Olmecs uh, carved uh, things in very hard basalt rock, volcanic rock, a very tough rock. So it lasted uh, 
it's much more durable. So um, they built these things to last. But any thoughts on what the the rock on Mars may may be? Uh, it is of? apparently um, the basic rock types. Mars is a much more volcanic. Uh, kind of planet than the Earth is, uh, in a sense. The uh, rocks tend to be iron-rich, um, similar to lava on um, uh, Hawaii. Uh, so uh, that's a uh, forms a very dense kind of form of basalt. You can see that uh, very much on the west coast here now, where I live. And it, so it would, I wouldn't would assume then, uh, if we're talking about sort of an igneous formation, it would it would withstand uh, the forces of erosion much greater than say limestone. Yes, yes, it was. It's very tough rock. All right, so that takes us. That's the '76 image that was leaked out, uh, <laughs> and uh, and then that's when NASA started to do uh, earn their nickname, never a straight answer. That's uh, right. <laughs> and then. Uh, lo and behold, we have this image from 1998. That was a, uh, a masterpiece of disinformation or misinformation because it was released by MSSS, uh, Malin Space Science Systems. So the public was entirely misinformed on that. Uh, they took the picture in, under as different lighting conditions and different viewing angle as possible. To, in order to deliberately confuse the public, apparently. Uh, that's, of course, an interpretation. But uh, instead of taking the pictures from above, as in the Viking, and in the afternoon, uh, which shows uh, nice long shadows, and um, they took it in the morning and at an, a very oblique angle. And you can see that when you look at pictures, especially the enhancements done by Dr. Mark Carlotto, there's a, a crater near the face, and you can see that it's foreshortened. It's it looks like an oval or an ellipse, it's right beside and, the face. Right, and then uh, was there further, say, photoshopping done on that, or was this strictly achieved through, uh, through no, angle they, and shadow? They basically um, used the power of suggestion, being as they were government officials. And they know the public, um, at least in subjects of extraterrestrials, uh, displays a childlike credulity for all government statements. And so they basically said, uh, uh, here's the face. Um, it's obviously not a face. Uh, move along, folks. Nothing here to see. Right, right. And they, uh, they got it to stick. They also waited till the very last moment when all of the news networks had to file their stories. So there could be no basically back and forth between reporters or anything like that. So they they sat on the they got the picture early in the morning and sat on it all day and then released it just as everyone had to file their stories. So that was kind of like the final word is here is this um, face and they released it without enhancement. Um, so that it looked like um, uh, we joked. It looked like an object in a in a cat litter box. <laughs> yes, yes, I can see that. Uh, <laughs> now, then the, we, the, the image Carlotto immediately got the picture and enhanced it because it had been released on enhanced. And when we enhanced it, it was magnificent. It showed ornaments on the helmet. 
and nostrils in the not in the nose. Ornaments on the helmet. Tell me more about that. Yes, uh, they're clearly seen in the uh, uh, picture, the original picture, and I have that in my. Uh, Dr. Mark Carlotto has um, um, many uh, pictures of that uh, in his uh, book, The Cydonia Controversy. Also, I have it on my website, lifeonmars.pub. <clears throat> and it's got clearly got nostrils and a nose. And these were kind of details that we predicted we would find, despite erosion, in what was called the Cydonian Hypothesis, which I wrote with uh, Vince DiPietro and Greg Molinar. I was the first author. And we proposed a dead civilization on Mars. We hypothesized it and said that new pictures of the face and the pyramid would show new details like uh, brickwork and ornamental details and anatomical details, despite erosion. And right. lo and behold, we found it. And, that, and, and then thereafter, about three years later, we get another image of the Cydonia Mensa, and it's yes. even less defined. Uh, no, actually, the new pictures from the Odyssey spacecraft, which was not controlled by JPL, it was controlled by University of Arizona, and they were far more um, straightforward and honest. They released their pictures enhanced. They took the pictures from above, and they took them in the afternoon, just like the Viking pictures had been taken in the afternoon, and they basically show that it looks just like it did for the Viking. Oh, those, well, I'm looking at something are also on my website, um, lifeonmars.pub. So, yes, the the U.S. government, especially operating through uh, mail and space science systems, MSSSS, uh, really pulled a fast one on the American public. They knew everybody was waiting for the picture. They released it unenhanced. Uh, it was an unfamiliar from an unfamiliar angle, viewing angle in an unfamiliar lighting and it basically succeeded in diffusing the whole matter they gained about 10 years of peace and quiet now how do they exp what did they do with the 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 images of the pyramid did they did they try and well, they just obfuscate there they, they didn't did take any more uh then i was finally at a scientific conference and somebody the people from the University of Arizona released pictures of the pyramid, and it looked just like it did on, in the Viking, a five-sided pyramid. And you could just see, you could feel in the audience, uh, in the auditorium where I was, a sense of shock and awe when they released that picture. Right. Right. Now, you were mentioning, you know, the, the way that uh, they, the, the military and so forth, uh, the government deals with scientists. But you're not just any scientist, Dr. Brandenburg. Yes. Uh, I mean, you worked on the rocket plume, um, regolith interactions on the moon and Mars. Yes, vor yes. Vortex theory of rocket engine design. Uh, I, I, well, I'm very proud of my scientific career. And sure. I've uh, been working on space problems now for the past um, roughly 25 years. But my point is, invented the microwave electrothermal plasma thruster. That makes it's, me a rocket engine, uh, that it, makes me a rocket scientist. It does, it does. And so, and this isn't rocket science. No, it isn't <laughs> rocket science. The point is that you you can't be so easily dismissed. Well, so what, we, what do wasn't. they do? 
What do they do with you? Well, actually, they treated me very nicely. Uh, basically, I became, I tried to think like the government. I tried to put myself in their shoes. And I would basically, when I would talk to government officials about this, um, we had a meeting down at NASA headquarters before they even took the uh, new pictures. And I explained that finding a dead civilization on Mars, a dead humanoid primitive civilization on Mars, or what looks like one, we're not sure of its actual technological uh, level. We can't know that really till we dig. But I said, this is a soft landing for the human race because it's not threatening. Right, right. It, it poses yeah. no military or existential threat to the human race at all. Because this civilization implies, has been gone for, right. Right. It implies that we're part of a living universe where intelligent life is common. If you find remains uh, on two different planets in the same solar system of humanoid uh, dead civilizations, uh, humanoid civilization, then that says that humanoid civilizations are pretty common in the cosmos. Right, right. That follows. That certainly follows. And now what also was found, unfortunately, uh, is the reason, the reason for the demise of the civilization and life-bearing conditions on Mars was apparently a massive nuclear holocaust. And this is a complete, this is a very much a disconnect between the impression of um, that you get from studying all the Mars artifacts at the various sites. We've identified about four different sites where there's a lot of archeological looking um, objects. And what we found was uh, no evidence of any advanced civilization. Um, and we've been studying this for decades now, but we, what we did find was um, nuclear weapon signature in the Martian atmosphere, massive nuclear weapon signature. Well, yes, we, and we're coming up on a break, so we will uh, discuss sure. uh, the uh, the um, the fingerprints of nuclear devastation with Dr. John Brandenburg. And just again, a reminder: the author of Death on Mars will be a feature speaker at the 2018 MUFON Symposium, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, July 27th to the 29th, MUFONSymposium.com for more information and for tickets. Back with more of our conversation right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Dr. John Brandenburg. We're talking about uh, Mars and whether or not the uh, the red planet is uh, the path to extraterrestrial disclosure. Um, all right. So the, this 
we won't, I won't say pr- necessarily a primitive culture that lived on, on Mars, but certainly not technologically uh, advanced. Uh, and uh, you say the, uh, the evidence suggests a, a nuclear um, devastation on the red planet that yes. wiped out this, this civilization. Talk to me about the evidence in Mars atmosphere that led you to this startling conclusion. Well, of course, a, um, when a nuclear weapon goes off, uh, it is a uh, Earth, it is a human version of a supernova explosion. The, the physics of a supernova explosion in deep space when a star explodes and a nuclear weapon going off are very similar. And so uh, you get intense uh, high-energy neutron bombardment of heavy elements like uranium and thorium and things like that. And this leads to uh, forensic uh, clues as to how the, uh, what what occurred. Uh, Xenon uh, has, is a very interesting um, element. It has five stable isotopes. And uh, so it has a nice, or at least five stable isotopes of any significant uh, abundance. And so this, uh, you can do forensics on this kind of fingerprint. Uh, for instance, a ordinary nuclear reactor uh, run with uh, uranium uh, with moderated neutrons uh, produces almost no xenon-129 at all. However, uh, a nuclear weapon going off produces a lot of xenon-129. So the xenon-129 is a production, is a signature of a very, it's called an R process. R process means a rapid, uh, intense, high-energy neutron bombardment of, um, of elements in the core of a star, in a supernova, or in a nuclear weapon. So what has happened is uh, we have discovered in the literature that uh, they've identified our process in some meteorites that, that are not from Mars. They, they date from the very early solar system and captured uh, xenon from a supernova explosion that formed helped form the solar system. And they this R process xenon matches Mars atmosphere almost exactly. And there's yeah, no, no other... One of the literature has ever pointed it out. The reason they don't point it out is because they knew that there had um, their own experts had looked at the forensics and on the no... xenon distribution and knew that it meant a massive nuclear holocaust on Mars. There's no other pos- plausible explanation, an asteroid impact, nothing else going to no. cause this. No. Uh, there is no known other... There is no other known process besides a new supernova or a nuclear weapon explosion that creates this kind of uh, xenon um, pattern. And how did you find out about xenon-129 in Mars atmosphere? Uh, Well, I was working at a government laboratory uh, where the major effort was uh, nuclear weapons. And one of the... uh, groups at the laboratory. This is called Sandia National Laboratory, which is where I went to get my first uh, job after getting my PhD at Lawrence Livermore Lab. I went to Sandia National Lab. And 
Uh, they had a program there of doing atmospheric monitoring. They would look for spikes of xenon-129 when somebody uh, set off a nuclear weapon. And they could calculate then the yield of the nuclear weapon based on the xenon-129 that changed in the Earth's atmosphere, etc. And uh, one of the people involved in that program, um, just by accident, by coincidence, was standing there when I was discussing uh, the xenon-129 pattern on Mars, and he blurted out, oh, that means someone nuked them. And right after he said that, he looked startled as if, uh, why did I say that? And then he excused himself from any further conversation. What it, he had done is he had spoken something classified in an unclassified setting. And this had happened periodically, so you just excuse yourself and and uh, end the conversation. So uh, I found that out at uh, Sandia National Labs, and then later in my career, I worked with uh, people who were doing um, uh, atmospheric monitoring, and they explained to me that the xenon-129 uh, superabundance uh, was symptomatic of a violent nuclear explosion. All right, we'll uh, we'll leave it there. We'll pick it up on the other side. John Brandenburg, PhD, a report from Mars. Does the path to extraterrestrial disclosure lead through Cydonia Mensa and the Red Planet? Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with John Brandenburg, uh, the author of Death on Mars. And uh, again, he'll be at the MUFON Symposium 2018 in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, July 27th to the 29th. And um, so we were talking about Xenon-129, its presence in the atmosphere. It's the fingerprint of a nuclear holocaust, essentially, that yes. uh, this would have been then the um, the what caused uh, Mars to lose its atmosphere. Yes. Um, so what's can we can you timestamp that based on the I don't know, the decay of the, the radiation or uh, how does that? No, it's uh, Xenon 129 is stable. So it actually stays in the atmosphere forever. Uh, there are other radioactive traces. Um, that make it look like this occurred on the order of a billion years ago. So this far predates human um, civilization or the human race. Uh, it looks as though it was roughly 200, and we're talking ballpark figures geologically, roughly 200 to 300 um, million years ago. 200 to 300, my yes. word, 200 to 300 million Incredibly years ago. Incredibly ancient. The only reason the objects on Mars are preserved is that Mars went into deep freeze afterwards. <clears throat> 
and water erosion ended so that you preserve these objects on Mars against further erosion. There was a little bit of dust erosion, but uh, for the most part, Mars just went into a deep freeze. Everything was flash frozen. And uh, so this stuff has been preserved. Now, I want to mention also, in the last three months, we've gotten some very important new data, which I'll be discussing at the symposium. And in fact, I will be making a, based on that new data, an important scientific announcement. All right. You're going to tease us with that. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, sure. now, but, but you presented this, you presented this at the Pentagon and yes. how did they react? Well, we presented it to a representative of the, of the Pentagon um, and he went and reported it to the Mars desk. Apparently there's a Mars desk at the Pentagon. He reported it there. A Mars desk at the Pentagon. Were, yep. you, were you shocked to discover that? Yes. Uh, the government had given no indication it regarded this as anything of interest. And suddenly we found out that this was of absolutely, uh, they had an obsessive interest in this matter. Uh, well, we found the remains of the nuclear weapon signature. We reported it immediately to the Pentagon. And they sent a representative um, to take our briefing. And um, if he knew anything about it, he gave no indication that he did. He took it all very seriously. And um, he left. We heard nothing for six months. And then, uh, and then we got a message back saying, why don't you publish this? They wanted us to publish. Wow. So the government has basically set the uh, process of uh, disclosure of the dead civilization on Mars uh, in, in, in motion um, roughly the year 2000. So the government wants John Brandenburg to be the instrument for disclosure in a manner. I am the clueless tool, apparently, of this <laughs> government. Uh, I, I think they, they've encouraged all of us. I mean, there are many, many workers on this whole subject. Uh, there's the Society for Planetary SETI that I belong to. Um, so we're, uh, there are a lot of us working on this. We've never been interfered with by the government. And essentially, we've been encouraged to publish. Now, here's me being the cynic. I'm wondering sure. if, the, if the Pentagon, knowing full well how the mainstream media works, thought to themselves, all right, John Brandenburg, you go and you release this information and let's see, let's, let's allow the MSM to do our work for us and to ridicule and to discredit and all of that nonsense that you know goes on. Is uh, that yes. per perhaps what the government was thinking? Um, I think um, I think they wanted uh, they, they basically waved me and the rest of us ahead um, because they recognized that we were rather pugnacious characters and very persistent and that we get the job done. I don't think uh, they they knew us well enough that we were not intimidated by having um, uh, 
people in the mainstream media make fun of us. And 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 what reaction has there been? I mean, you didn't get an, a, a a New York Times front page story. No, I uh, like like a tip. Why not? Uh, but you got to remember, the New York Times uh, counts for a lot less than it used to. No, that's true. That's uh, true. The, the real mainstream media now is the internet itself. It's much less controlled. Something goes viral on the net, which some of this stuff has. Um, that makes up. It doesn't matter then what the New York Times thinks. Still, though, a lot of people in the UFO arena continue to look to the New York Times. And when in December of 2017, they, uh, the New York Times, Leslie Kane and others released that story. I mean, that was yes. heralded around the world as some sort of unofficial disclosure. It, it, it is. Uh, I'm astonished it occurred. It also indicates uh, something seems to have changed. It, within the government, uh, there has been speculation, in fact, that we may be facing a secret crisis, and they are trying to bring the public up to speed as rapidly as possible. Uh, but but this incident that happened 300 million years ago. Yes. Uh, I mean, if they had nuclear weapons 300 million years ago. Yes. I mean, are, are we even talking about the same civilization no uh, no we're uh, uh the nuclear weapons uh we know where they went off because of uh, traces of radiation in potassium and thorium which have very long half-lives of uh, billions of years um and uh they were airbursts we're talking nuclear weapons as big as the empire state building and they were apparently dropped out of space and went off um, high in the atmosphere, maybe close to 100 miles up. And because that maximizes shock damage, this is the same reason they that the airbursts, that the Nagasaki and Hiroshima weapons were airbursts. If you're dealing with uh, civilian structures, um, airbursts are preferable because they cause uh, greater damage over a greater area. Hmm. A friend of mine likes to say there's two ways to de to destroy a city. One is to bomb it from the air, and the second is rent control. But that's another matter. <laughs> <laughs> that's another story. That's but, another story. Yeah. Yes, but I'm just a rocket scientist. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, why? sociology. Uh, but I will. I will say. Sadly. Nothing we have proposed as happening on Mars has not already happened on Earth. Right, right. But including a mass murder with, uh, well, a massive um, loss of civilian lives with nuclear weapons detonated in air in midair. But I mean, what? I mean, it's impossible, I suppose, to even it'd be very difficult to even speculate. But why would an, a civilization? feel the need to wipe out a relatively primitive culture on Mars with, uh, it's, it, it's it like is, a, taking a sledgehammer to a mosquito. It is baffling and we don't understand it. Uh, that is, however, the scenario that seems like the simplest interpretation of the facts 
of the, the simplest interpretation of the data that we have found is this was apparently an attack from space by a much more advanced uh, species on a primitive, almost Bronze Age civilization on Mars. So if there are, let's say, um, I'm sure there are multiple paths to disclosure, but if one is through the revelations of, uh, of this uh, whistleblower from ATIP, who will also be at uh, the MUFON uh, Symposium, Alessandra. Yes, um, um, I'm looking Ele- forward very much to meeting him and talking with him. Yes. Um, so, if I mean, if, let's say that's one um, Louis Elizondo's uh, path. You know, yes. the, if that's one path. Mars would, as you say, would be the safer path for the government to take because um, it's not a threat. It's not a threat. Yeah, and this Richard is why this uh, whole situation is rather baffling. Um, we had uh, told the government repeatedly that we were doing as they suggested. We were publishing, and uh, that this gave us a give them gave them and us a um, kind of a soft landing uh, pathway for revealing to the American public and to the whole human race that we're not alone in the universe that we share the universe with uh, people of like passions and abilities as ourselves. We must become spacefaring. All of that was uh, very well. It was going very well. Suddenly the um, ATIP thing comes out and it is completely unprecedented. The Department of Defense has never released official Department of Defense data considering of UFO sightings like this. And it's very disconcerting to a lot of people in the UFO community. Um, And the problem is that it almost appears that it is being driven by events that have nothing to do with... um, the American public's um, the things that concern the American public that they, the um, the concern is is that the U.S. government is dealing with a secret crisis. Right. And In this, other words, there's an urgency here. Yes. They can't they can't do the soft landing through the red planet yep. path to disclosure. They've it, it's it's coming at us too quickly now. Right. That's frightening. That's a frightening prospect. Well. Um, I can't be sure, uh, but it's my hunch that that's what we're dealing with. And this is, this feeling is shared by many other people who've been in the UFO field for a long time. Uh, our familiarity with the, some of the personalities involved in the government and the way that they, you know, their standard operating procedure uh, suggests that um, they are dealing with some problem, and this has uh, created a level of urgency to bring the public up to speed as quickly and, as possible. And of course, now we have uh, President Trump's announcement that he wants a space force, which might yes. obviously there seems to be a connection there. 
interesting, very interesting. Um, we'll have to, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I don't know. I'm just speculating that that is what's going on. I don't know. All, all right, John. Is, all I know is that also the government has provided new data concerning Mars in um, about the same time frame as they supplied the ATIP releases. They started replying, uh, supplying uh, new Mars data. Well, and we will have that at the MUFON symposium, and this is one of the things driving the scientific announcement I will be making. New Mars data, and that's uh, John Brandenburg, again, the MUFON 2018 Symposium, a report from Mars, does the path to extraterrestrial disclosure lead through Sidonia Mensa? John, a, a real delight. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Richard. Uh, it's a great honor and pleasure. My pleasure, John Brandenburg. All right, when we come back, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, Haunted Hills and Hollows, what's lurking in Greene County, Pennsylvania? The Conspiracy Show continues right after this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is standing by. She's got a brand new book called Haunted Hills and Hollows, What's Lurking in Greene County, Pennsylvania. But before that, I just want to dial back to our previous hour. Dr. John Brandenburg uh, was here. Uh, We were talking about Mars and uh, the uh, Cydonia Mensa, uh, which will be the subject of his upcoming uh, presentation at the MUFON Symposium 2018 in uh, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Now, coincidentally, um, this it's happening July the 27th. The symposium kicks off July 27th. So he'll be there speaking about Mars on July 27th. What do you think is happening as well on July 27th? I alluded to it off the top of the first hour, but I didn't have the exact date. I've since looked it up. The blood moon happens on July 27th. The late evening of the 27th into the early morning of the 28th will have the longest lunar eclipse of the 21st century. And Mars, at this point, will be uh, the closest it's been to Earth in 15 years. How fortuitous is that, that this is all happening as the MUFON Symposium is kicking off on the 27th, and John Brandenburg will be presenting new Mars data as well, all on that date. And none of that was planned. It just, it just fell into place. Remarkable. 
All right. It is uh, time for our monthly visit from a dear friend of the program, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, best-selling author, researcher, investigator in the paranormal, metaphysical, and related fields, including afterlife studies and spirit communication, cryptids, alien contact, and the interdimensional aspects of our extraordinary experiences. Uh, she is the author of I believe now close to 70 titles. Of course, you can check out her bookstore at visionaryliving.com, the Encyclopedia of Dreams, Symbols and Interpretations, uh, How to Develop Your Miracle Mind Consciousness, Ouija Gone Wild, Haunted by the Things You Love, uh, the Encyclopedia of Angels, Dreamwork for Visionary Living, Black Mirror Scrying, uh, The Zozo Phenomenon, Demon Haunted, True Stories from the John Zaffis Vault, The Road to Strange, Werewolves and Dogmen, and her latest, her latest, Latest is Hollow Hills and sorry, Haunted Hills and Hollows. What's lurking in Green Pencil Green County, Pennsylvania? Rosemary Ellen Guiley, welcome back to Conspiracy the Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hi. Well, busy as ever, Richard. And even though I'm, I'm thrilled to be sharing my birthday today with the Conspiracy Show folks, uh, but oh. it's um, never a dull day in my life. Uh, I'm constantly working, and as you can imagine, I have all kinds of projects in the pipeline. Well, uh, first of all, happy birthday, a very happy birthday. I hope you had a good one. It was a wonderful day, and uh, yes, I actually did relax a little bit. <laughs> good for but, you. Good for yeah. you. So what is the genesis of, uh, of uh, Haunted Hills and Hollows? How did this come about? I mean, you're focusing, hyper-focusing on, on Green County, Pennsylvania. There's enough going on in this one county to fill an entire volume. That's remarkable. Uh, there really is, and the book was the result of years of investigations. And even though it's uh, a, a small geographic area, it really is uh, a bellwether for weird phenomena that goes on everywhere. It's just very concentrated in this part of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is a very active state. It's one of the top ten in Bigfoot sightings and encounters. It has a lot of UFO activity, a lot of uh, hauntings. It's got a lot of um, uh, abandoned mines that contribute to hauntings. And uh, Greene County is, is no exception. Well, this all started for me in 2010. And um, my co-author, Kevin Paul, who is a lifelong resident of Greene County, heard me on the radio. And uh, he sent me an email, and he said, hey, you ought to come down here. we got a lot of stuff going on. Well, I get emails like that all the time from uh, all over. And, of course, I, I can't simply uh, go everywhere. And, uh, you know, sometimes places might have a little bit, but uh, that would be it. But there was something about his email that, just resonated with me, and I thought, I've got to check this out. So I arranged uh, to go to Pennsylvania. I was living in Connecticut at the time, still am. And I did some investigations with Kevin and some research, and I was just blown away by the territory, the terrain, the history, the activity. Nothing had ever been written about it before. And Kevin, being a lifelong resident, he, he knows where all the bodies are buried, literally and figuratively. Uh, and so we started this, this research project. And uh, the result is a book that has become a bestseller. 
which is very unusual for a regional book. It's a good read. The stories are creepy. And uh, we hit um, bestseller in uh, three categories on Amazon and, and in Kindle. It's been um, a real rip-roaring ride. And I'm really pleased because uh, I think the, the stories are just fascinating. Well, just just listen to the chapter titles. I mean, how could you resist? The Lobster Alien and Other Strange Beings, Massacres, Blood-Soaked Ground, Mounds and Disturbed Burials, Strange Activity, activity Near Lapping Farm, Black Blobs and Mole Things, Freaky Franklin Township, The Ghost of Frank Bryan, Mystery People and Black-Eyed People, uh, Crazy Hauntings, Weird Warrior Trail. Um, is, is, is there one... A township in particular within Greene County that 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 has more more of its share of paranormal goings on, or is it distributed evenly throughout the county? I would say it's distributed pretty evenly. It's just that we hear more about things in the more populated areas like Franklin County and of course Waynesburg, which is the county seat. Uh, there's a lot in Greene County, which and it butts up against West Virginia, and so that's where the hills and hollows come in. Uh, there are a lot of very remote areas. They're sparsely populated. People have lived there for generations and have experienced things that over the passage of time, uh, it, with some of them it becomes almost accepted, a part of the backdrop of life. Oh, oh yeah, we get UFO activity all the time, you know, that sort of thing. Or every now and then we, uh, we see certain uh, uh, cryptids. And uh, so a lot of it was going around to some of these more remote areas and, and digging out the stories. And uh, we interviewed a lot of people. Uh, we did uh, original field work. Uh, Kevin did um, an amazing amount of historical research because that figures into it, too. The energy of the land, I think, is uh, a lot of what drives the hauntings in this, uh, in this part of Pennsylvania. You have abandoned mine tunnels active mine tunnels, fracking has been going on, oil and gas drilling, things that disturb what, what is underneath the earth, which is the domain of the spirit world. Uh, and uh, you've got this history, this very bloody history of uh, colonial and, and Indian clashes and massacres, houses being built on top of old Indian mounds and cemeteries, and nobody knows it until they excavate and things start to happen. Uh, and these things happen elsewhere, too, but it, uh, it struck me that Greene County was really a crucible for uh, a lot of these things, and that's why we call it the most haunted county in America. Oh, wow. You must have been like a kid in the candy store. I'll tell you, we were, and our research uh, lasted years. You know, we, uh, when, when I started investigating with Kevin, I wasn't necessarily thinking of a book. I just wanted to get the lay of the landscape and maybe do some interesting cases and uh, collect some, some stories. And the deeper that we went, the more it became apparent to me that there was incredible material for a book. And uh, as I uh, emphasize, no one had ever written about it before. And I think that's one of the reasons for the book's tremendous success as well, is that it's fresh paranormal territory. And um, due to the, uh, the overheated aspect of the, the paranormal field for so many years, uh, there isn't a whole lot of fresh territory to, you know, ground uh, to overturn. And so this uh, represents something brand new with new cases, new stories, 
Um, and yet the kinds of things we describe could go on anywhere. All right. Well, let's let's kick it off with this uh, lobster alien tale. How did that story come to you? Well, that's my favorite story, and that's why we opened the book with it. Abduction, attempted abduction by a lobster thing. And ultimately, we don't know whether it was an alien, per se, like an E.T. or some sort of cryptid. But uh, Kevin had known um, the... Uh, the woman who was involved, uh, Sherry, which is a pseudonym. A lot of people asked us for pseudonyms because um, they've lived in the area so long and they know everybody, uh, although their stories are fairly well known. Uh, she had lived in one of these uh, remote hollow areas or haulers uh, with her family, for uh, which had been there for, for generations. And the area is very haunted, has a lot of activity, uh, she had apparitions that came into her bedroom, shadow people. There was a lot of UFO activity uh, overhead, which would shine lights down on the house. Her parents were really kind of blasé about it. And when she was growing up, uh, she would comment on something that showed up in her bedroom, and her mom would say, oh, that's just the aliens looking in on you, or if it seemed to be human, like, oh, that's just Grandma uh, wanting to check up on you. And so it got passed off on uh, in that way. There were a lot of shadow figures in the roads uh, at night, and she was often afraid to go from the house to the barn at night because of these shadow figures. There also was an interesting area behind the house. It was a hill that she would like to walk on, uh, sometimes with her dog, and it seemed to have a force field that there was an area that she felt that she was passing through some sort of, like, a barrier. Um, and we were wondering if there might be some kind of electromagnetic anomaly or something that creating a literal portal, because if she went through this barrier on the hill, she experienced missing time. And whether or not she was ever abducted during that missing time, uh, we don't know, because she never had any conscious recollection, and she did not want to do regression. But the seminal event that we're talking about tonight, the uh, lobster thing, occurred when she was a teenager. And she had a bedroom on the second story of her house. She went to bed one night and woke up in the middle of the night, as these experiences always happen. And her window has transformed itself. It doesn't have any glass in it. It's, it's got a brilliant light in it that seems to be glowing. Um, and in, in this window area is what looks like a giant lobster, uh, which she gauged to be about seven or eight feet tall, and it had enormous claws. And as she looked at it, it reached in the window and grabbed her by an arm and dragged her off the bed and pulled her toward the window as though it wanted to abduct her. Oh, well, my goodness. Have you ever heard of such a thing? We have <laughs> grays and reptilians and, uh, you know, other kinds of aliens coming to abduct people, but lobster things? No, I mean, not since those, you know, those really cheesy science fiction movies involving, you know, large creatures on the island of Japan in, in the 1960s. Uh, well, exactly. And in fact, many of these stories fall into the, oh my gosh, you can't make this stuff up uh, category. The witnesses um, are all very credible, many of them known by my co-author for a long period of time, and he can vouch for them. So we didn't feel that anybody was pulling our leg. Um, but uh, she struggles against this thing uh, mightily, and it drops her and retreats out the window, and she passes out. 
Well, she wakes up the next morning, and she's curled up on the floor, uh, and the arm where this creature had grabbed her is sore and black and blue with bruises. Um, She was so upset uh, because she was willing to pass it off as some weird nightmare, but she couldn't explain how she uh, landed on the floor and the bruises that were on her arm where this thing had grabbed her. Uh, she she was so upset by it that she did not tell her parents uh, for you know a very very long time because she, she thought nobody's going to believe me. It's one no. thing. No, Rosemary, I got to jump in like here. It, we'll uh, we'll take a quick time out and uh, come back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, Haunted Hills and Hollows: What Lurks in Green County, Pennsylvania? Right here on the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio, you're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, paranormal investigator, joins us once a month here on The Conspiracy Show. Her latest, a bestseller. This thing is going nuts at Amazon. Haunted Hills and Hollows, what lurks in Greene County, Pennsylvania. This is about eight years in the making, a lot of field research, and uh, just jam-packed. Not only is the book jam-packed, but Greene County, apparently, is just jam-packed with paranormal um, uh, occurrences, and uh, Rosemary has labeled it the most haunted county in America. So back to this lobster alien story that that grabbed this woman, this kind of a botched alien abduction, perhaps. Uh, how does this end? Well, it never came back, and so she doesn't. You know, we're we're left to speculate, and she she didn't know either why it never came back. Did she put up too much of a struggle? Um, perhaps it went on to something that was easier pickings, perhaps. Um, a lot of these experiences are one-offs, and we don't know why they happen or why they don't happen again. But this lobster thing was part of, uh, I, I would say, a zoo of unusual entities that we encountered in our investigations, like the mole things. Yes. Um, Another weird entity that, um, and this I, uh, both of us do believe was tied to the disturbance of Native American artifacts. Uh, and uh, a man who was remodeling a house found under his porch what appeared to be um, an artifact, a Native American mortar and pestle. And he took it out from that spot and brought it into the house. After he did that, he started being visited first by black blobs, just black pillars and blobby things that would come into the house and follow him around and show up wherever he was. And it was quite unnerving. Um, And those eventually gave way to a a shape-shifting phenomenon where um, the thing would start out as a black blob and then shape-shift into what he could only describe as a mole thing. It, lo- it resembled a mole, and it had enormous clawed feet. So, uh, again, nighttime attacks, uh, this thing scuttling along the wall, 
and then pouncing upon him um, in bed uh, and start ripping at him like it was trying to claw a hole in his body. Oh, my and Lord. This happened when he was sleeping on his stomach, and it happened when he was sleeping on his back. Uh, these were terrifying attacks, and then other members of his family started seeing this blob thing, too. Uh, and he finally put two and two together that none of this happened. Uh, and I think a lot of residents are used to kind of weird things happening in their homes there. There's a lot of haunted places. But none of this happened until he had just found the mortar and pestle and disturbed it. So he took it and, with a prayer, uh, put it back where he had found it in the dirt underneath his house. It had a raised porch, and the activity stopped. So was this black blob some kind of spirit guardian of old artifacts? Was this sitting on mound territory? And one of the things that we have to realize here is that uh, in this part of Pennsylvania, and it extends into West Virginia and Ohio as well, the ancient mound builders were all over the place. And so there are many Native American burial sites that were never marked, of course, mounds that got um, abandoned and covered over. And then the settlers come in and build on top of them. And uh, so a lot of these things aren't even found until construction goes on. Well, then you have the question of, do we stop construction? Do we excavate these relics? Or do we just keep on going? And uh, there, uh, many people have felt that, um, well, you know, just keep on going. Um, it's only a few bits of pottery and bones and whatnot. Uh, no problem, but they, then they build their, their house on top of this and then wonder why their house is haunted. Right, right. Um, and, and so let's talk about the, um, uh, the, the Native Americans that lived in the, the area. Uh, now, is this considered part of the Ohio Valley? Um, well, I guess the greater Ohio Valley, the big river that uh, runs uh, through uh, part of Greene County is the Monongahela, and uh, it comes down, um, the Monongahela runs past Pittsburgh as well. But this part of the country um, has a long and rich haunted history. Ohio has a tremendous amount of activities. I mentioned Greene County butts up against part of West Virginia, which has similar kinds of activity, and it also county-wise um, borders Fayette County, Pennsylvania, which is um, probably the most active county in Pennsylvania for Bigfoot and cryptid sightings. So there's a lot of weird energy in, in this part. It's the very southwest corner uh, of Pennsylvania, a lot of weird energy that has remained undisturbed, a lot of it undisturbed until recent times. And um, Green County and Waynesburg used to be really sleepy. Waynesburg was a sleepy little town. It's still little. But um, the oil and gas drilling started to heat up uh, within the past decade. They started fracking, taking the gas out of the shale. And uh, that brought kind of a boom economy to the area. So it's, it's grown considerably. But right. once you get outside of, of um, it's hard to even call it an urban environment, it's more like a small town environment, uh, you're really out in the sticks in some very remote places. And 
yet these parts are being disturbed, too, by people who want to live further out so they find a remote area and build something on it. Um, we had one of the chapters in the book concerned um, a, a farm investigation that we did. That was one of the first cases that uh, Kevin brought me in on. Is this Lapping, the farm, the Lapping farm? Uh, no, this is uh, at the end of the book. It's a chapter called Angry Spirits of the Land. Ah. And it was an old abandoned um, piece of farm that sat on top of abandoned mine tunnels that uh, was purchased by a commercial interest for some experimental farming. And there was a, an old uh, farmhouse built in the 1800s that had been abandoned, uh, didn't have any indoor plumbing. Um, a man was hired to uh, manage the property, and um, he would use the abandoned farmhouse as his headquarters, but it wasn't livable, so, you know, he lived in, a, in another town. And when the activity started up on the farm, it seemed to rile something up. There was something that lived on the land that got very angry at the presence of human beings and machinery and stuff going on. Uh, and it started reacting against anybody who spent any amount of time there or worked there. Uh, I did investigate uh, that on and off over a period of several years. We had um, sightings of what we called an imp cat. We called it an imp cat because it had kind of a demonic look to it. It would peek in the windows. There were apparitions of human beings that walked around the property. Um, there were shape-shifted uh, apparitions that looked part human, part something else. Kevin actually, uh, or excuse me, not Kevin, but the, the fellow who managed the place, uh, actually captured a photograph of um, something looking out of one of the windows, and we have it in the book, um, that looks half human with a cat head. Uh, oh, my God. Rosemary, I got to tell you, Green County is starting to make Skinwalker's Ranch look like a big snore. <laughs> well, it could certainly give Skinwalker Ranch a run for its money. Uh, it's a much bigger territory, of course, than the ranch, but the variety of activity. Uh, we had shadow people on that a piece of property. We had uh, phantom animals that defied explanation. We just called them the little gray scurrying things because they seemed to be amalgams of different kinds of animals. But there was this resident spirit of the land that um, communicated to us uh, through uh, the ghost box and also in a seance we had that it was ancient. It had been there long before people this was its territory. It didn't like people on its territory. Everybody should leave, and if, and if people did not leave, it was going to make everybody miserable until uh, people did get out. And it took several years, but eventually um, human activity was driven off the property because uh, the farm could not be commercially viable. Something was always going wrong. And uh, the property sits abandoned today, so the entity of the land won the battle. Do you suspect the jinn? It's certainly a possibility, and uh, I did entertain that idea because uh, the jinn are ancient, and they also like territory, uh, and it certainly would fit their uh, their behavior pattern to uh, start acting out against 
um, humans that they considered squatters on their on their property. It would, it would, you know, it's you have to think of it as like, well, how would you feel if squatters came and you know set up uh, in your house or your your second uh, cabin or whatever, and uh, just decided to live there and do whatever they wanted? Um, well, these energetic things happen as well, and there are plenty of examples of this all over the place. You know, paranormal investigators have. Um, gone into so many places where there seems to be uh, a resident force that is not real friendly to people. So um, this this is something, interestingly, that Plato said we needed to take into account. Plato said there are places on the earth where people are not meant to be for whatever reason. The gods live there. Spirits live there. We have to be respectful of those abodes. We have the attitude today that uh, if we want to live somewhere, we just go in and bulldoze down the trees, cut the brush, put up our house. Uh, and if there's something invisible there that, that uh, doesn't like it, well, that's too bad. Haunted Hills and Hollows, what lurks in Greene County, Pennsylvania? Well, a whole lot, apparently. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is uh, with us, visionaryliving.com, uh, the website. Uh, it almost makes you... Uh, all of these disturbing uh, entities makes you sort of pine for just a good old run-of-the-mill Sasquatch. Uh, <laughs> and, but there, well, we, there are plenty have... of those in Greene County. In, in fact, the um, Lobster Girl, uh, um, what was her name, her pseudonym again? Um, Sherry? Was it Sherry that uh, had yeah. the encounter with the lobster? Yes. She and... also had She also had encounters with Bigfoot, did she not? She did, yes. And they would howl at night. Uh, it's not uncommon in these remote parts of the county to hear uh, what people feel is Bigfoot howling at night. And, in fact, uh, another name for Sasquatch in that area, they're literally called the Night Howlers. Ooh, I like that name, the Night Howlers. That'd be a name. That'd be a great uh, Seattle band, I think, the Night Howlers. Uh, and... Um, how prevalent uh, are, are Sasquatch in, in, in Greene County? I mean, does everybody, not everybody, but do, do, do loads and loads of people have Sasquatch stories, did you find? Well, when I uh, researched the reported records, uh, Greene County is not one of the most active. It butts up against the most active county in Pennsylvania, but uh, the number of reported cases to organizations that collect that information is lower than other counties in the state. I think it's just a matter of reportage because when, when you get out in the field and you start talking to people about their experiences, you might contact someone because they've had a certain kind of sighting, and then if you ask them, uh, have you had any other encounters or activity, then they'll volunteer things like um, unusual cryptids or, or Sasquatch. So I, I think that there's probably plenty of activity. It just has been underreported. Now, the Bigfoot researchers in Pennsylvania that um, I know and have had discussions with uh, have said the same thing. I just published a book this spring called Chasing the Elusive Pennsylvania Bigfoot by uh, a very well-known Pennsylvania ufologist and Bigfoot researcher, Paul G. Johnson. And when he started his research 20 years ago, um, there wasn't very much documented in certain counties. But um, he and others 
made a concerted effort to seek out reports, advertise for reports, and follow up on things that they heard about through the media or secondhand, and compiled quite a database of activity. So I think it's just a matter of ferreting it out. All right, we'll uh, take a time out. Uh, maybe the fact is there's just simply not room enough for Bigfoot in Green County. There's too many other things, lobsters and moles and uh, black blobs and and um, so many other crazy things going on. We'll uh, come back. Let's talk about uh, the ghost of Frank Bryan on the other side. Rosemary Ellen Guiley here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When you look at the sky... Ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Haunted hills and hollows. What is lurking in Greene County, Pennsylvania? Rosemary Ellen Guiley's latest. And uh, so much going on in this uh, this uh, rural county in southwestern Pennsylvania, right at butt, butts up against uh, West Virginia. Uh, who is Who was, I should say, who was Frank Bryan? Uh, Well, the ghost of Frank Bryan started out as a joke, and we included this story because it's one of Kevin's personal stories. Uh, He's had a lot of haunting experiences, and it's an example of how uh, you shouldn't take things lightly. You shouldn't take things paranormal things lightly. And it it concerns um, a dairy that Frank Bryan owned. It was called Bryan's Dairy in Waynesburg. It was hugely uh, popular. Uh, delivered very good products. The kids always liked to go there for milkshakes and ice cream. And uh, Kevin, uh, when he was in school, uh, so it would have been high school for him, two of his friends, uh, which we call Tom and Jerry in the book, again, pseudonyms, um, they worked at the store, and uh, they would close up at night. Well, one of them was kind of skittish about the paranormal, and... Uh, so uh, they decided to play a joke on the boy who was kind of afraid uh, by telling him that the storeroom was haunted and then send him into the storeroom by himself uh, at night. It would kind of freak him out. And after they had joked around with him for a while, um, they confessed to, uh, to playing a joke on him, and real phenomena happened. Um, at at the very moment that they were laughing hysterically over their joke on this poor guy, um, containers uh, of ice cream and paper cups um, and supplies literally flew off the shelf behind the counter. It was as though an invisible hand had just gone down the counter and swiped everything off with a great force. And they weren't near the shelf. Nobody had touched it. There was no way to account for that. But it was like... Well, you think nothing is here? Well, you better think again. And after that, Kevin said he took the paranormal very seriously. Mm. And did uh, did uh, did that particular poltergeist activity continue? Well, I believe it did. Um, although the two boys who worked there uh, laid low about it 
for a long time because both of them were spooked. And the dairy uh, is long since closed. It, it uh, doesn't exist anymore. But, um, uh, and I'm not sure what replaced it there, uh, what business is there now, but it wouldn't surprise me if that spot had some kind of activity uh, in, in the place. Well, despite the, the fact that the uh, the whole county seems to be a hot spot, there's one hot spot of hot spots apparently called Rice's Landing. Tell me about it. What's going on there? Uh, Rice's Landing is indeed a spooky place, and uh, Kevin and I went a number of times to Rice's Landing. Um, one of the things that uh, there are two stories that that draw paranormal people to the area, and one is an old legend called Stovepipe. And uh, the legend goes, there are variations of it, but the legend goes that there was um, um, a miner uh, who was at odds. With, it was a union, non-union sort of confrontation. Um, and he liked to wear a stovepipe hat. And um, uh, the road that goes down Rice's Landing to the Monongahela River is very steep and windy. And... Um, one night he was going down this at a very brisk pace in his uh, with his horse and carriage and had an accident and uh, fell off and was uh, decapitated uh, by the carriage. And so the legend is that his ghost walks around looking for his head. And if you go there at night, especially around midnight, and you go to uh, one of the bends in this road and call out, stovepipe, 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 three times, his ghost supposedly will appear. But like an urban legend, it's like, well, you don't want to call him in because maybe he'll take your head, you know, if he can't find his. <laughs> oh, I love this one. This is, this is wonderful. The, uh, the other story really is a sad tragedy, and it was uh, the murder of a little grade school girl. Um, this goes um, back several decades, and uh, there are a lot of homes in the area around Rice's Landing. There's a big park in the middle of it. Um, there's a riverfront area where when the paddle wheel boats were in vogue, uh, there was a lot of port activity. But in 1973, um, this murder took place. Uh, her name was Deborah, and she was eight years old. She got off the bus to walk. Uh, to her home, which was very normal at the time. Uh, and in fact, um, her two brothers were out uh, about in the area, and so were neighbors, and she was seen walking home, but she never made it home. Mm. And her body was uh, discovered several days later in um, a sh uh, buried in a, a shallow uh, kind of grave underneath some forest debris. Uh, let me just jump in, Rosemary. We'll we'll pick up on this story on the other side. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, Haunted Hills and Hollows, What's Lurking in Greene County, Pennsylvania, back with more of The Conspiracy Show right after this. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. 
We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Haunted Hills and Hollows, What's Lurking in Greene County, Pennsylvania. It's a bestseller, folks. Um, is it available at VisionaryLiving.com as well? Yes, it is. Visionary all Living, right. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, all the usual places. Are you doing autographed copies? Oh, yes, in fact. Uh, and we can hardly keep them in stock. Terrific. All right. So uh, before the break, we were tr- talking about this tragic story in an area of Greene County called Rice's Landing. This involved the murder of a young uh, eight-year-old girl coming home from school. Uh, she didn't make it home. They found her body in a shallow grave in the forest. So if you wanted to pick up this this tragic story from there, Rosemary. Uh, it really is tragic. She had been raped and strangled with a piece of twine. Oh, and dear. 40 years later, uh, this murder has never been solved. Uh, What a heartbreak for the family. Uh, And so uh, many people feel that the area where her body was found is haunted. And people will sometimes see apparitions of a little girl or they feel an incredible heavy sadness in the area. But uh, no solution to the murder. Oh, dear. of all the places that you you visited, because I mean this this was uh, you know boots on the ground kind of research. You did some investigating in the field. What was the scariest place for you? Uh, the scariest place would have to be that farm, uh, the experimental farm where the entity wanted everybody to leave. I did quite a few overnight investigations there, uh, and. They were scary, what manifested. Uh, We had manifestations of very threatening shadow figures, you know, humanoid forms that look like uh, men wearing coats and hats. Uh, There was an enormous black blob that would be seen um, outside. The, The farm was located in some hilly territory. And it would come out of the woods and move along in the hills and play hide-and-seek in the trees. It could actually hide itself between a very, uh, behind a very skinny tree trunk. Um, sometimes we saw balls of light floating over the property in different colors. Uh, they would bob over, over the uh, ground and then just drop into the ground and completely disappear. Um, there were swirling tornadoes of what appeared to be heavy black, like black ink tornadoes that would manifest in the uh, second floor of the house. Um, since no one was there at night, uh, unless we were investigating, uh, the place was always locked up. Uh, and it was not unusual for Jack, the, the man who managed the place, to come in in the morning and find that um, the windows were open. They had been locked, uh, but the windows were open, and there were mysterious muddy footprints on the windowsills that looked creature-like. The front door might be open. Uh, Couldn't explain any of that. Uh, One of the experimental uh, things that they were doing was uh, raising chickens, and uh, the chickens would be found mysteriously dead, not like a predator would get into the coop and, uh, you know, kind of tear them up. But And this happened even on investigation night, where in the morning we would find dead chickens and there hadn't even been a ruckus in the, in the chicken coop. Oh, my uh, gosh. Like if a, a fox or something got in. And the odd thing about that is that the chickens would be laid out neatly in a row, 
which is something a predator doesn't do. Were their uh, necks had, broken? And they would just be dead. Mm. Uh, it, it was very strange. Uh, people who came and, and worked uh, on the place had uh, mysterious cuts uh, and rashes that developed on their skin. Uh, machinery broke down all the time. Um, we got threat. As I mentioned, we got threatening messages uh, over the ghost box and and uh, via the séance. Uh, many things were tried to get rid of it. We tried um, doing a, a Native Tamer- American tobacco ceremony. We tried exorcisms of various kinds. Nothing would dislodge this entity. And when the farm commercially couldn't make a go of it, um, it was it was just abandoned. Uh, people wouldn't stay very long who came to work there. They would have um, some sort of freaked out experience. Uh, there, there was um, one example that we relate in the book was a a young college volunteer, a lot of students volunteered for the farm, and he was very devout. He brought his Bible every day to read at lunchtime, which is, you know, perfectly natural to, you know, read the book of your choice. Well, he was alone one day uh, in the farmhouse downstairs having his lunch, reading the Bible, and he hears walking upstairs. So he thinks that Jack is in the house, and he didn't know it. Presently, Jack comes in from the outside, and this totally freaked this young man out. Uh, he uh, he said, well, if we're the only two here on the property and you just came in, who's upstairs? And uh, Jack said, son, you know, <laughs> there's some things i got to tell you about this place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he never came back. Uh, we uh, People wanted to bring guns on the property as if guns would help against something <laughs> invisible. <laughs> right. Well, when this, when you're witnessing this, when it's happening to you, are you more excited because, you know, this is your profession, this is what you do, and you're actually getting to experience it, not just read about it, but it's happening? Or are you more frightened? Does the excitement override the fear? Tell me about that. I'm usually excited uh, because uh, I want to document things. I want to see what kind of evidence I can capture. I want um, a personal experience that I'm able to relate uh, so I'm uh, I'm usually very excited, but there are times when things get very unstable. Uh, the energy becomes unstable, or whatever is there seems to be unpredictable. And that was the case with the farm. That um, there were times when I did not want to be on the property because I felt that at any time something haywire could happen, and I would come out on the worse end of it. And it was just a shift in energy, you know, a buildup of tension or some kind of phenomena that would happen. Once I was uh, running the ghost box inside the farmhouse, um, this was during the day, and I had my eyes closed for a while so I could uh, try and concentrate better on what was coming through. And when I opened my eyes, I had a bloody little cut on my arm, like someone had taken a paper cutter or a razor and just given me a... Not a deep cut, but a very thin, thin slice. I can't account for it. Uh, but these are kinds of things that other investigators often encounter in hostile environments. And I do believe that there are times when, uh, look, folks, uh, it, it's time to fold up your cards and get out because uh, you you don't want to become uh, a serious victim. Do you think if you had persisted and stayed uh, another night, another two nights, that something seriously could have gone wrong? Well, yes. I think you run the risk of that. Uh, What happened uh, with 
some of the investigators that I worked with was, um, it was like um, whatever was there started winnowing them out. And accidents would happen to them right before an investigation night, or they would become mysteriously ill, uh, like emergency room mysteriously ill, something that would force them off the investigation. And um, pretty soon, uh, you know, we, we had serious attrition to the number of investigators who, who were able to come or wanted to come. Um, you know, even Jack talked about um, he had a lot of equipment uh, mishaps, breakdowns. Sometimes he felt uh, some, that something was following him home, giving him nightmares. And I think entities are capable of this, that uh, uh, given, uh, given enough uh, rope, so to speak, they can attach to people and then start causing serious havoc. It seemed that whatever was resident there uh, had a territory that it liked to stick to, uh, and, you know, maybe it couldn't go very far. Um, it's drawing its power from the land. But there are other cases where investigators do get attached, and some of them do have serious trouble. Tell me about uh, Art Huck. What happened to Art Huck? Uh, you, some really freaky UFO stuff. And um, he was a young man at the time, um, and he, he was working for a farmer and taking the tractor out into some remote areas to, uh, to work on the land. And uh, there were some times when he saw light, mysterious lights in the sky. He went uh, camping a couple of times with a couple of friends of his, and they saw mysterious lights in the woods that kind of freaked them out. It was the end of their camping trip. But the main experience happened um, one night when, um, well, his tractor broke down. And um, he noticed that there was uh, a light in the sky that, um, seemed to come down to the ground, and he went to investigate. And um, he's, he starts walking along, and he comes upon uh, a landed craft. And uh, it totally scares him. And he runs back to the tractor, and he can't get it started. Uh, you know, it's just like straight out of the movies. And uh, so he's trying... Not going to have a fast getaway on a tractor anyway. <laughs> it takes him a while to get the. He realizes this thing is not of this earth. You know, this is a saucer, a saucer-shaped craft that's landed on the ground. He finally gets the tractor going, and you know, tears out as fast as you can tear out on a tractor, which is not very fast. Uh, and he was so scared that he didn't want to go back to that area. But after a while, he screwed up his courage, and he went back to see if it was still there. And, of course, it was gone. Uh, and there are a lot of residents in Greene County that describe um, overhead UFO activity, uh, and quite frequently, uh, as though these things are like traveling in paths across the sky. But this was actually a landed craft. Right. And what, what decade was this? What year, approximately? Uh, that would have been, I believe, in the 70s. The 70s, ah. And did it leave the craft, did it leave any imprints in the ground? Was there any, I don't know, mysterious purple foam or something left behind? Uh, it did not leave like a trace circle or, or something like that. It was just gone. 
Uh, and so, you know, we're left with an eyewitness account that says, I have no evidence, and we run into this all the time, I have no evidence to prove this. I know what I saw. This is what happened. And um, what do we do with these cases? Well, uh, if a person is credible, then, you know, we take it at face value and see if we can find some corroboration or there are other people who noticed something mysterious in the sky on that night. Um, unless somebody reports something, it's very hard to dig these things out. Right, right. What do the Native American residents uh, in the area make of all of this? Because there are, there are I believe there were the, uh, uh, the Algonquins were, were settled in this area, the, the, the Seneca, a uh, lot of different uh, American, Native American nations living in this area. What do they make of this? Do they have... Uh, sort of a theory as to what's going on? Well, there were quite a few uh, different nations that uh, either traveled through this area or lived temporarily or used it as a hunting ground. And, of course, we have the burial artifacts to indicate um, actual residences uh, going, you know, pretty far back in history. And so from, from their perspective, it's like, well, what do you expect if you disturb the energy of the land and the the beings who share the landscape with you. What do you expect? Um, now, at the, at that farm case with the hostile entity, we did have some help from the Shawnee, uh, who gave us some very old original uh, ceremonial tobacco uh, to try a placation um, exorcism, and we burned the tobacco and we sprinkled some of it around the farmhouse and. Um, did uh, had an exorcism done there, and it did quiet the place down for about three months. But then it came back. Oh and wow! That, that happens a lot too. So uh, these massacres that happened early on. This, I think, is part of the reason for a lot of the paranormal activity. Uh, that part of Pennsylvania was uh, a very bloody battlefield uh, uh, from about the mid-1700s on, as the colonial white settlers pushed further and further into the territory and beyond. And at first, a lot of the relations were peaceful. And I, I think an effort was made, uh, in many cases, on both sides to, uh, to be friends. But as the, the colonials started taking over more, it really got a lot of the uh, Native Americans angry. And so there were massacres. The whites were just as bad as the Indians. Whites would go in and murder and scalp the Indians as well as vice versa. So, so obviously it, that, yeah, that, that is imprinted. All that blood soaked into the soil has had... Uh, has, has had an effect. We are uh, we are out of time, uh, but people can go and get a copy of Haunted Hills and Hollows, What Lurks in Greene County, Pennsylvania. Rosemary, thank you so much. Well, thank you, Richard. Always a pleasure. Likewise. Visionaryliving.com, the website. All right, that's it for me. We are back next week with a brand new program. The mystery of the 432 megahertz frequency. We'll also talk to Dr. Lynn Katai about the Phoenix Lights. Until next time, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.